Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So, friends, we are continuing in our series of looking at various genres that we can fa- that can be found in the library known as the Bible. And so far, we've looked at um, most of the Old Testament, at least a good chunk of it. Looked at the um, the law, the the Pentateuch, you know, the Torah, whatever you want to call it, um, the histories, wisdom, literature, and the Psalms, which became their own episode. And so today we're moving on to our last kind of large chunk of scripture. So Sarah, tell us, what genre are we looking at? You mean the last large chunk of the Old Testament? Old Testament. I, did I say scripture? Yeah. <laughs> well, if, if, we were, if we were Jesus, we would say yes, because then in Jesus' day, the scriptures ended with the Old Testament. Uh, anyway. Anyway, we're looking at prophecy. Oh, prophets, gotcha. Um, so what, 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 what's the starting point for talking about the, the prophets? So, my understanding, which granted it's been a while since I have studied the prophets, is that most of the prophets happen, like, around the Babylonian exile, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're either prophets who are predicting the exile, or they're prophets during, where they're, like, prophesying of, like, hey guys, I know things are really, really terrible right now, and that we've been spread to the four winds, but, uh this isn't forever, that God will be bringing us home again. Mm-hmm. So, it's, But most of the prophets seem to be kind of around that era. Or in the north, the parallel event for them was when Assyria conquers them a century before. So, yes. mm-hmm. um, And maybe we could say the earliest of the, of the prophets who write, at least, there are some who don't have any, we don't have any written record of what they said, um, like the 8th century prophets like Amos and Micah and Joel and Hosea, seem to have been in the weird period before um, the northern kingdom gets conquered by the Syrians where things were going great and the official word on the street was life is great therefore God must be pleased with us mm-hmm. and so when folks like Amos arrives on the scene and starts saying everything is terrible God's going to destroy us they especially get greeted with weird looks because their stock markets are closing at record highs, and their uh, army is strong and powerful, and their borders are secure, and everything is seemingly great, and the official word from the king and from the official religious establishment is, things are great, don't bother us, oh you troublemaker Amos. And then later on as things seem to get hairier and scarier, other prophets arise saying not only are things not going to get better, they're going to get worse. (laughs) And then like you say, Sarah, after exile or after the northern kingdom falls, you've got prophets sort of left scratching their heads going, well what just happened? (laughs) But before, uh, while while the the books that we call the, the books of the prophets are the ones who wrote things down, or we have uh, records of their oracles, it's worth remembering when we talk about the histories that there are figures like Elijah and Elisha who are remembered as prophets, mm-hmm. but we don't have a book of things that Elijah said. Um, instead, this seems to have been like this office, this unofficial office that arose in Israel's history kind of organically as the person who's convinced God raised them up to speak stuff that nobody else would mm-hmm. say, and... Later on, somebody said, we should actually write down the things that these prophets said, because mm-hmm. it turned out the things that they warned us about came true. Um, but the the first figures we get in this role of prophet, like Elijah and Elisha, we don't have any record of what they wrote. They may have written anything themselves. They may not have written at all. Um, and maybe this is also worth, also worth saying. Some of the prophets, maybe maybe most of them, the the things that we have written down in their books 
have the feel of having first been verbal oral events that they were like mm-hmm. spoken maybe even like street corner preaching style mm-hmm. kind of things they are often poetic and so all the rules that we talked about before about how to read Hebrew poetry are going to come back in how you make sense of the prophets because many times you'll get big long blocks and we often call them oracles but they're like, it's like a speech event and there's often those same rules mm-hmm. of poetry there where you get an idea and then a repetition of the idea or a contrast and that happens a lot in reading the prophets and it's helpful to know that they're often speaking and thinking in poetry and in figurative language rather mm-hmm. than being literal. And in the major prophets, which are only called major because their books are longer right. versus the minor prophets, not that one's more important or, or one uh, is better than the other, but the major ones have longer books, have a lot of history woven into them as well. And so again, going back to the historical right. books that we talked about, you'll, you'll see... Um, a lot of overlap, especially I'm thinking Jeremiah, mm-hmm. that I read through him recently. Um, you know, there, there's just so much that that coincides with the Chronicles sure. and, and things, those historical books from the book of Jeremiah, uh, because, of, you know, along with the oracles about yeah. the warnings and everything about the exile. And I think that that's, it's helpful to um, note that, that um, while often we use the word prophet in our culture, kind of sloppily to mean somebody who predicts the future. Mm-hmm. It, it was much more in the case of the, the prophets whose, whose words we have in, this, in, in our scriptures that they're talking about events in their day or on the horizon in their day and that they would have treated them less like psychics and fortune tellers mm-hmm. and more like pundits almost, like people on the news saying like, here's my take of what's going on in the world or in our country. And the issues that they address, like when they are, are critical of things going on, they're not like it's not like they suddenly go into a trance and start like you know I foresee. I mean, we'll, we'll get to those weird moments in the Bible, but that's more <laughs> apocalyptic. That's another yeah. that's another conversation. Um, but more often, it'll be like I I see the way that we are treating other people in our culture, and that God says that's not okay. God mm-hmm. has appointed me to say. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Mm -hmm. There, uh, that line out of the the prophet Amos is maybe a fantastic example of how the the prophets are just using the rules of poetry. So Mm -hmm. it's that same idea gets repeated but in different words. Let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's using the the style they're familiar with of poetry but to make a point for a particular thrust. God doesn't doesn't care about your religious rituals. God cares about that we be people who treat others fairly and and Mm -hmm. rightly, that kind of thing. It kind of reminds me of um, a phrase that I was reminded of recently, that the only difference between a prophetic sermon and a political sermon is whether or not you agree with the sermon. (laughs) Interesting, Mm -hmm. interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think that the prophets are also very similar, that probably when they were standing on the street corner saying the things that they were saying, it was probably viewed as political. Oh, it certainly. In, in fact, yeah. I almost think the, the the scandal is that we treat them as um, visionaries and fortune tellers or future predictors when they seem to be so much more often talking about the stuff, the, the front page news of their day, mm-hmm. and saying, here's what's good, here's what's bad, and especially when what they have to say doesn't line up with the official word coming out of their capital. So, like, mm-hmm. Amos, to me, jumps out as a really important example, because he uh, was raised in the southern kingdom in a little village called Tekoa, and he goes up to the northern kingdom to Israel, and his message is, even though the markets are doing great and you've got lots of people who are super rich, God cares about the way you're tr- you're treating each other and cheating each other, and it's all going to come to ruin because uh, you're 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 uh, you, you don't care about God's priorities. And there's this great scene in the book of Amos where he goes to the official. Uh, 
government-authorized religious sanctuary at, at Bethel, uh, or it's, uh, maybe it's Samaria, and the, the head priest says, you're not allowed to come here because you're speaking against the king. The official policy is, this is our king, and God endorses whatever mm-hmm. the king does. This is the golden calf that God has appointed our king to set up for us to worship. A literal golden calf, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, Amos gets kicked out for speaking about the issues of mm-hmm. his day and doing it in a way that upsets everybody. So, yeah, that's exactly what the prophets did. Although sometimes, to be fair, they didn't upset the people. They actually listened. Like, uh, one of my favorite prophets is Jonah. Yeah. Who, you know, as we all know, was followed by a whale. But he was sent to warn a city that yeah, if they didn't straighten up, God was going to destroy them. So he goes into the center of town, says what he has to say, and is really kind of hoping that they won't listen to him because he wants to watch them be destroyed. Mm -hmm. But luckily for the city, they all listened and was all like, Mm -hmm. oh man, you're so right. We we do need to turn back to God. We do need to repent of whatever the bad thing was that they were doing. And they repented, and God did not destroy them, and Jonah was actually really disappointed. Yeah. But notice who actually listens to the prophets, those who were considered the enemies right, of God. Right. Where the people of God, well, no, this prophet's crazy, right. they're just, you know, they're trying to cause a stir, like, let's right. kick them out of the city, let's kill them, let's, you know, whatever, right. uh, let's put them in a cistern. Right. <laughs> Saw them in half, right. I I think that's an important piece, too, that Jonah stands out, even though he's lumped in with uh, other minor prophets, because it's a short book about a prophet. But unlike, say, the book of Amos or Micah, which says at the beginning, here are the words that Micah said, or here are the words that Amos said, the book of Jonah is a story Mm -hmm. about somebody named Jonah, and we get, like, one sentence of anything he said, and that one moving sermon was, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, again, it seems almost like the book of Job, that this is less about um, what he said and more about, like, the lesson we learn from this life or the way the story plays out. Because at the end, after the after he's upset that the people repent, the whole second half of the book of Jonah is almost Jonah's uh, redemption story. Because Jonah goes out and complains. He sits uh, watching the city from a distance mm-hmm. and is grumbling that God didn't wipe out the city. And uh, because he's there sitting out in the hot, hot sun, God appoints a castor bean plant to grow up overnight. And like It's like the Bible's Jack and the Beanstalk <laughs> story. Yeah. So this magical, almost, bean plant grows up overnight and is large enough to provide him shade. So it's a super big castor oil plant. And Jonah is happy about the plant because he likes being in the cool shade. And then the next day, God sends a worm that destroys this castor bean plant overnight. And Jonah is mad. And God finally comes face to face with Jonah and goes, hold on, let me get this straight. You are upset that this bean plant that grew up in one night that you didn't have anything to do with growing, it just grew on its own. You're mad that it died, but you don't care about a whole city full of these these Assyrians, mm-hmm. and as God says, who don't know their left hand from their right hand, and also many animals. That, that's my favorite part about that book, is that at the end it's like, God, you know, did you not know, Jonah, there's animals in that city. I love animals. I'm God after all. I made them. But, like, the, and, and the thing that, that haunts me about Jonah is that that's how the story uh-huh. ends, and that we never find out, I think intentionally so, what Jonah does with that. Like, it almost, like, it forces us, it forces the end of the story back to me, about, like, what am I going to do when it turns out God's mercy is bigger than I want to allow it to be? Mm-hmm. And what if, as soon as I've set up this line of, here's the people God's not allowed to love, or God's not allowed to forgive, or mm-hmm. God's not allowed to be good to, God has to hate those people, and I've drawn this line, here's the barrier, what happens when God's love is bigger than I want to allow it to be? What will I do? 
Um, and honestly, I really think that's why Jonah, the book that we call the book of Jonah, got held on to the way that it did. Because it's not a book of the oracles of Jonah. It's about stupid Jonah ran away from God, <laughs> and stupid Jonah couldn't let God's mercy be as big as it really is. What will you do when that's uh, when God shows up that way? That in, in, in an important way, the book of Jonah asks questions that Jesus' ministry to me, seems like that's part of how God answers mm-hmm. the, the, the question of Jonah. Because here Jesus then starts surrounding himself with all the people that the religious, respectable people have said, nope, these are out of bounds. You can't love these people, can't love these people, can't love these people. And here's Jesus going, yep, I'll double down on it. This is what God's <laughs> reign looks like. Now, the other books of the prophets are basically collections of the oracles or they're presented as the sayings or... Uh, vision sometimes of what these these various figures said and did. Sometimes they would almost do like performance art when they would do when they would mm. preach, right? So sometimes they weren't just preachers. They would do actions that were meant to be symbolic actions to represent what they were convinced was coming in their future. So mm-hmm. there's the story about what Jeremiah goes around wearing a, an oxen yoke uh, mm-hmm. around because he's convinced this is like meant to be a symbol of we're going to go into bondage like a like a, an, uh, an ox in a yoke and Babylon's mm-hmm. going to carry us away. And then there's this false prophet, false because he was wrong, um, named Hananiah, who like lines up with the official royal policy of everything's going to be fine, Babylon won't come, and Hananiah says, all right, well, if that's your cool symbolic act, I'm going to break that yoke, and I'll show you that I'm right. And they have this like dueling war of symbolic acts with each other, um, like about what's going to happen in the future. And mm-hmm. everybody wants to listen to the false prophets like Hananiah, because they say things that we are comfortable with. Like, oh, it'll be all right. Nothing bad will happen to us. Um, And Jeremiah is right in the end, but it's sort of a terrible way to be right because he has to watch his country be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, and the the big prophet I think of that does a lot of that and Mm -hmm. is called to do a lot is Ezekiel. Sure, man. I mean, over and over and over again, Ezekiel um, has all these visual... Um, metaphors. He was sort of a prop comic. (laughs) He was, and I can't, you know, I can't recall all of them, but I mean, just... Again, you know, I've been reading through scripture chronologically, so I've just finished up the prophets. And man, Ezekiel, like, he has to lay on his side for like a month, and then right. like he has to lay on the other side for like three months, and all right. this other stuff. And um, I really hope that God never calls me to be one of His prophets. Well, I don't want to be like Ezekiel. Like in a way, I, what I what I think is helpful about this is is instead of getting like lost in the that's weird that God made them do this to see those as speech events and like this is God trying to get find any way to get through the people to mm-hmm. say like what will it take to get your attention because yeah. the words alone aren't doing it so alright fine if you see this crazy person doing some, some weird stunt at least it gets your attention and you'll ask what's going mm-hmm. on here um, and in a sense it, feel, it seems to me like the role of the prophet was a necessary like counterbalance voice in ancient Israel and Judah because the prophet's at their best, weren't an institution. Like, the, the priests have this whole structure. Mm-hmm. There's a temple, we've got we've got a whole family lineage to figure mm-hmm. out who's going to be the next priest, and we, where do we get new priests from? Well, they, uh, they're the descendants of the previous priests, and here's the family line. Same thing with the, the kings and the, the royal families. But there are no... It's slippery who gets to be a prophet. It's just like the people who say, well, I had I had a vision, and God called me. And, like, mm, they, they speak, they do, because mm-hmm. God, like... And the prophets have this recurring... 
like so many of the prophets will tell stories in their own in their own books that are something like I was minding my own business and God called me and uh-huh. I had no choice but to speak and if I try and keep the words in I'll explode and mm-hmm. Jeremiah says it's like a fire in my bones um, but they are like this countercultural counterbalance to the official uh, institutions of Israel like almost like in in um, American civil life we talk about checks and balances between executive and judicial and the legislative branch and that they're all supposed to check each other from nobody getting too much power and in a sense without there being a constitution in ancient Israel, the, the prophets sort of step up as this check and balance because they don't have anything to lose. Mm-hmm. They, like, the kings, if, if they look bad, well, there might be a coup and they might replace mm-hmm. us or there might be, you know, a, uh, and there often were violent coups when one tribe or somebody else wants to replace the old king. Mm-hmm. And the priests, they have a whole lot to lose if people give up on this whole temple system. But the prophets have the freedom of being able to say, this is wrong, or this is unjust, or we mm-hmm. should be doing this a different way, and they don't have anything to lose because they're just anybody's. Yeah, they come from a, a variety of vocations, yeah. a variety of ages. I mean, you've got Jeremiah, who was probably around a teenager when he started, and Amos was a, was a shepherd, and, you know, they all have things that they could, if they survive, mm-hmm. go back to, <laughs> you know, unlike all these other folks that, that you were talking about, Steve. But I, I was thinking... Um, you know, we, we've said a couple of different times that the prophets talked mostly about the stuff that was happening within their time frame or just on the horizon mm-hmm. of, of things that are coming up. And yet, um, here in a couple of months, we're going to be celebrating the season of Advent. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be having, especially in your tradition as lectionary preachers, being having some passages, I'm sure, from the book of Isaiah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. That... As Christians, we take as not only being prophetic to that specific yeah. time period, but also like predicting the future, sure. like the prophets we think of today. How how do we hold those together? Huh? Yeah, how do yeah. we hold the tension between those two? Like, how much is is? And again, I'm thinking of Isaiah, Isaiah in particular. How much is he speaking just to that time period? Sure. And how much of that can we impose upon? Right. Jesus and right. It's a good question. And like I, I remember when I was in seminary, we would I, my my Hebrew scripture professors would often say things like, "We only rarely get to have Jesus moments in the Old Testament because usually the writers aren't thinking about Jesus." <laughs> um, but um, and certainly it's fair to say from the New Testament perspective, there were lots of passages from the prophets that we might go, "Oh, this turned out like Jesus. This is about mm-hmm. Jesus." But I think it's important to say, like when Isaiah says something like, "You know, um, a child uh, for us has been born, a son has been given." to us. What is he picturing? I doubt he's picturing a manger. I mean, like, he may have this idea that there will be a son of promise or a child or or that there will be a future Davidic king, but that picture isn't all that fleshed out for him. Um, And I think part of what what becomes the messianic hope is this realization that the old system wasn't ever going to work no matter how reformed it Mm -hmm. got. Like, if you have a decent king, things might be a little bit better for a while, and then you have a bad king, you hope for another slightly decent king, something like that. But the prophets say, no, there's going to come a point where God's going to have to be the one who intervenes and creates a whole new system. Um, And part of that, I think, was for all the... All the prophets, especially in that time period you mentioned earlier, Sarah, about those who sort of see the exile coming, live Mm -hmm. through it, and then have to make sense of it on the other side. It's their whole, the whole official national government-approved theology got ruined because the government-approved theology of the day was we've got a divinely appointed king that will last forever and nothing will ever shake it. Nothing bad could ever happen to us. Too bad for too long, and this is what we're stuck with. And then when exile happens, the prophets were left going, 
did God give up on us? Is there a possibility of a new beginning? Because it sure seems like that old relationship, mm-hmm. that old covenant we had is broken and can't be revisited. And they end up having to say, wait, there could be hope. But the hope is going to be not just a return to where things were before, but a whole new... They, they talk in the language of it'll be, oh, a new covenant. The old covenant we broke, but so God will make, oh, here's how it'll work. There'll be a new covenant. Or the old kings failed us. So in the new arrangement, Ezekiel will say, God is not instead of appointing human shepherds, God will be the shepherd. Mm-hmm. Oh, or um, Ezekiel will say, the old problem was we have these stony, rocky, hardened hearts. God will give us new hearts. Um, and Isaiah, similarly, when he talks about uh, sort of the future promise God will send this ruler. It's almost like this. God's going to have to make a whole new creation eventually for mm-hmm. things to be put right. And eventually, that's, that's where Isaiah goes. I, eventually, the book of yeah. Isaiah ends with, turns out I wasn't just hoping for a new king to replace the bad king. I was waiting for a whole new creation. And it ends up with a new heavens and a new earth, which becomes the inspiration for one of Sarah's <laughs> favorite passages in all the Bible, Revelation 21. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, I, I think that's the piece of it. Like, if you would have asked the prophets in their lifetimes, are you picturing Jesus? They would have said, who's Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think they didn't fully understand what this new creation was going yeah. to be. Because even when Jesus was walking around and telling people what he was all about and what he was going to be doing, even his closest disciples were still expecting a conquering king right. like David. Right. And so, you know, it's one of those, like, God is doing something new. We don't know what that is, so we keep going back to what was before. Yeah. We, we, it's probably not going to be like that, but that's all. That's the only yeah. concept we have. And the scribes and Pharisees the same way. I mean, these are the men that studied the old, what we call the Old Testament. That was their scripture, mm-hmm. and so that you know, like you said, that's all they knew. So yeah, and, and it's because of that I try really hard not to read Jesus into the Old Testament <laughs> right. because I know that that's not what the author was probably intending. And it just kind of muddies my my thinking process. So I usually try, I just try to really hard not to read Jesus into the Old Testament. Which makes Advent particularly difficult for me. (laughs) Because that's all of the Old Testament readings that we get in Advent is like, Hey, a baby's coming. Right. You know, it's like Wonderful counselor, the mighty God one. You know, like the time the first century arises and you've got groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots Mm -hmm. for that matter, who all picture in one degree or another, when Messiah comes it will be a conquering king like David. Part of the problem, to be fair to the the Pharisees and scribes and all them, is the word that we translate Messiah is just the Hebrew word for anointed, and mm-hmm. anointed was the word for what you did to when the new king was going to mm-hmm. be coronated. So we have a new president swearing a Bible, but um, in ancient Israel, the new king, in addition to a crown on their head, their head was literally anointed with oil. It was meant to be the sort of signifier of God's presence or the spirit mm-hmm. dwelling on them, that kind of thing. And the word anointed, every time a new king arises, that was the anointed, and eventually comes to carry this set of, sort of sense of being the set-apart or chosen one, so that later on, the prophet Isaiah, or the book of Isaiah, can say, God's allowed to anoint even a foreign pagan king to be God's instrument. So Cyrus, the um, the, the, mm-hmm. the king, the Persian, Persian king, yeah. can be called God's anointed, God's Messiah. Um, and then later on, there comes to be the sense of maybe one day, eventually, there will be this other, you know, anointed one. Like, And, well, what did anointed mean before? It was like a king like David. So it'll be, a, you know, a king. And so, of course, it makes sense that people would have assumed, mm-hmm. oh, anointed, that means like the kings we had before. And since once you get to the exile... Israel and Judah don't live as independent as their own nation, as their own people, for 
400 years, 500 years, I mean, like, it may be longer than that if you include all of the Roman Empire occupation, um, but, like, from 586 is when Jerusalem goes into exile, is destroyed, up until 8070 when the temple gets mm-hmm. destroyed again, like, you're talking 600 years of one empire after another occupying the people, that, of course, when they take a look and see... God's going to do something new, of course they're going to assume, oh, it must involve repelling these foreign empires that keep conquering us. And when Jesus shows up and does some things that fit the the profile of Messiah, but doesn't ever raise up an army, of course people are going to be confused about it. I mean, that's a whole conversation later on, and maybe when we get to the Gospels, about they all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all have to deal with uh, what feels like the bait and switch. We thought Messiah was going to be leading an army, and (laughs) we got Jesus. Um... (laughs) But but when the, the prophets deal with that idea, yeah, they often use the imagery of uh, the the great days when the kings, you know, you know, God will reestablish kingship, and of course that that plants the seed of oh, it'll be like a king like David, you know, who went on his horse and started fighting battles for us, and then when we get Jesus, there's this mm-hmm. huh surprise. <laughs> um, I guess the the, the thing I want to make sure we talk about too, because you mentioned earlier, Sarah, the challenge that surely was there for the biblical prophets, and I think continues to be a question for us today, is how you engage with what's going on in the world around you and dare to speak, thus saith the Lord about things. You know, mm-hmm. like, um, mm-hmm. and even even today, like, when we get a passage from the prophets that is, you know, appointed lectionary to preach from, which is, like, even easier, like, you just, we can just say, well, the lectionary gave me this, I have to preach on this, I got handed this, um, or when you choose to preach from the prophets, it's tempting to just turn it into a historical study about a long time ago, people were very confused and the prophet corrected them without ever making the leap to what does God say for this moment in our lives and this moment right now. And it always feels safer to reduce our understanding of Christianity to after we die, it'll all be great, we'll be in heaven, and nothing about like how we treat people now. But the prophets were always willing to get themselves into trouble. Yeah, I think it's... It- for me, it's one of those things is occasionally the lectionary says something like, welcome the stranger. Mm-hmm. And so you you speak on, like, so if you speak on the immigration policy and how that might be broken in our country, that's suddenly a very political mm-hmm. thing to say mm-hmm. because currently... The that's immigra- a hot button. Yeah, the, hot, yeah, immigration issues are a hot button right now, so... it's one of those things that's like, but God says this, Jesus said this, like, I'm not, like, being super liberal when I say this, I'm just trying to follow what I think Mm -hmm. the scripture says. Sure, sure, sure. But that makes it very challenging when suddenly these things that God has been saying throughout the entire Bible Mm -hmm. is viewed political. It's interesting to me, like, I think sometimes we imagine that when Jesus or the prophets spoke, everybody applauded and said, great job, really awesome, instead of realizing, oh, no, they were regularly booed out of town and the people are always picking up rocks to throw at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> personal confession. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a verse from the Sermon on the Mount that um, I write down in I, there's this little uh, journal notebook I keep of quotes and things like that. And every time I fill up uh, an, old, uh, an old one and get a new one, I write this verse from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the line of Jesus, woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their answers did to the false prophets. Mm-hmm. But like it's it, like it, it is so tempting, especially for us who are religious professionals, to pin our sense of identity on: Are we well liked, or did people like this mm-hmm. sermon, or was this one catchy or memorable, or you know whatever? And Jesus has this like 
that is not the touchstone. Um, and regularly, we should be prepared to be as unpopular as Jesus. It's just we're not used to thinking about Jesus being unpopular, but he did get lynched. I mean, like it's like yeah. he he was executed by the the best of the best of the legal and religious establishment mm-hmm. of his day, who were all convinced they were doing God's work. Um, yeah, for me, it's just finding that balance yeah. of. Uh, getting people to grow their comfort zone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. without making them so darn uncomfortable yeah. that I'm out of a job. Yeah. Well, and, like, there, I, I, I ran across a line recently that's, that's been poking at me. I think it's James Finley says something like, it's true that um, every prophet probably irritated people, but not everybody who irritates someone is a prophet. <laughs> and I like that notion. <laughs> yeah. Like, huh, that's an important observation. That if you are if you are speaking a, an honest word from God that the Spirit has led you to speak for the day, it's probably going to upset somebody. But that doesn't, on the flip side, to say anytime I upset somebody, I must be speaking from the, the yeah. word of God. Sometimes I'm just being a jerk. And it, the difficulty is feeling out like, yeah, where is this a thus saith the Lord and where is this a this is just what I think. And that, it's hard to know. And I think what makes it especially gutsy for the prophets is every time they spoke, like they didn't know their words were going to get written down and become part of the Bible. They're just commenting on stuff happening in their life. And they did have the guts to say, Yahweh says this. I mean, like, man, that's bold. Um, and we tend to be much more, and maybe with good reason, um, humble and reserved about declaring our own words to be God. I mean, again, maybe our, our, we're, we're inspired in a different way, maybe. But we have the authority of all these ancient prophets to lean on and go like, I'm, not, I'm just not saying anything different than Amos did, or I'm not saying anything different than Jeremiah did. Um, but that's, it's difficult. It's scary work to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess if there's comfort, it's that Jesus seems to recognize that the, the way you could tell who the genuine prophets were, were they were the ones that everybody wanted to run out of town, <laughs> and that the ones who um, said the court-approved uh, king approved things were the ones who turned out to be the false prophets. So I guess maybe as, as, a, as a final thought for us today, um, the, the the work of the prophets, in some sense, addressed a very particular moment in Israel and Judah's history. As you pointed out, Sarah, a lot of it around the exile. But that doesn't mean the work of prophets is done. I mean, like I think there are a lot mm-hmm. of folks who would point to voices like uh, Dr. King or Howard Thurman, or you know, take and again, maybe not to use in quite the same sense. Like let's add into our Bibles the collected sermons of Martin Luther King. But that there is this ongoing challenge for the people of God. Um, to continue to, to speak, not just to after we die kind of stuff, but also what's going on here and that God cares about right here and right now as well. Mm-hmm. And the prophets seem to have that sense too, that God cares about the right here and right now and how we live our lives together, how people are treated right here and right now. And that's not a tacked on afterthought. The, the prophets take up easily a third of our Bibles. Mm-hmm. And it's important to note like that much of that is how God cares about how we treat each other, how we live in our communal mm-hmm. life and our social life together, and that that matters. Um, so it, we can't ignore that work and say, let's just talk about the stuff about after we die, because the, the Bible doesn't give us that permission. Well, it looks like we've got our work cut out for us. So <laughs> um, join us next time for more conversation as we dig into the scriptures here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.